Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. Is there something you'd say that you're pretty good at? I would say I'm good at dance and I like to do ballet. Okay. Is there something in ballet, dance specifically that you want to get better, been working on to improve at? I want to work on my pirouettes. For those that don't take any dance classes, what is a pirouette? A pirouette is a type of turn in dance. Oh, okay. And why do you want to get better at doing pirouettes? I want to get better at doing pirouettes because if you're in a competition Mm -hmm. and you want to get extra points, Mm -hmm. then the judges might think you did something good and then they might add extra points Ooh, okay and how does it feel to get better at something or if you've been working on doing a pirouette how does it feel for you it feels good to accomplish something because you've worked hard on it and yeah oh okay is there any advice for any future dancers out there that want to take a class or also working on their pirouettes what would you say to them i would say just practice and be patient because if you're not really patient then maybe you would like want to give up and stop working on it oh that's a great advice thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us you're welcome bye bye Hey, this is Hanuman Goldman. Hi there, this is Elizabeth Solomon. Hi, this is Daniel Goldman. You're listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. This is the second in a three-part series about achievement orientation. And for this episode, we're looking at what achievement means in systems. There's two things I like to say about that. One is the Dalai Lama urges everyone to do whatever they can to make the world a better place, even if they won't live to see the fruits of their actions. Just as you say, the fruits may come way later, you know, after you're no longer around. The other is I like very much putting the individual achievement in the context of the system. Is this, Does the system give you the causes and conditions that support that achievement and lift it to the level of success or not? Because when we talk about achievement, I, I think we tend to look at the individual, not at the system context in which the individual is working or operating. And you need both to come together. And I think about, you know, I think about that for organizations, too, who are struggling right now with the, in the purpose movement, you know, saying, how do I sort of let go of my fiscal or financial goals, these goals that my entire the structure of my organization is built around upholding and supporting um, how do I put those goals aside or focus on those secondarily to my social or societal goals? And that's a, that's a, that's a hard thing to change. Well, I'm not sure it's either or. Uh, I'm thinking of like Tom's shoes that gives away a pair of shoes for every pair you buy. Their uh, model is profit and purpose, not profit or purpose. And I think most businesses that uh, want to survive need to do both. This system that we're talking about specifically Uh, This conversation is with Peter Haberl, who works with Olympic teams. Peter has been with the United States Olympic Committee since 1998. In his current position as senior sports psychologist, he provides individual and team consultations and mental training sessions to various national team athletes 
with a specific specialization in team sports. Peter has enjoyed the privilege of having worked at nine Olympic Games, four Pan American Games, and one Paralympic Games with U.S. athletes. Prior to joining the Olympic movement in the U.S., Habrell played professional ice hockey in Austria. Born in Austria, Peter received his bachelor's degree in sports science from the University of Vienna. He later earned his master's degree in counseling and his ED in counseling psychology at Boston University. A licensed psychologist, Peter focuses on mindfulness and ACT-based interventions, which is an acronym for acceptance and commitment therapy. Welcome to our show today, Peter. We're so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. How do you talk about yourself and uh, what you do? My elevator pitch is, is I help athletes understand how the mind works in competition so they can work with it. That obviously then begs the question, how does the mind work? And um, metaphorically, the mind works as a thought and emotion producing factory um, that comes with a built-in thief. And this built-in thief steals something that's really precious for athletes, really precious for Olympic athletes. And when I ask my Olympic athletes, hey, what is it the thief steals? I pretty consistently get the same answer. Pretty much everybody says the thief steals confidence. So there's a sense of in order to be successful, I have to be confident at the Olympic Games. And I, I actually disagree with that statement. The thief steals something that's much more precious for, for the athletes. The thief steals attention. Uh, to me, attention is the currency of performance. So when, when athletes perform well at the Games, um, what is always present is, is their ability to be present, to be focused, to be in the moment. And that actually can be done irrespective of what feelings are showing. I love that distinction between focus and confidence. One of the ways that Dan talks about achievement orientation in his model is that it's not really just about getting things done for the sake of getting things done, right? Or winning for the sake of winning, but it's really about cultivating clarity, determination, and resilience. And I'm wondering, you know, as you're talking about focus and presence, how that helps with these pieces around clarity, determination, and resilience, and how you see that playing out with your athletes. Determination, clarity, resilience, through my lens, those are attitudes of mind, so to speak. And those attitudes of minds is something I can cultivate. And in my environment at the Olympic Games, you know, speaking of achievement, getting things done, there is this great desire, obviously, to get someplace, uh, to get to the Olympic Games and to win a medal and then to win the gold medal. So um, that outcome orientation is always present and to a certain extent has to be present. But that outcome orientation also comes with a dark side. Uh, and the dark side is, again, that it can undermine one's ability to stay present uh, because the mind, that thought and emotion producing factory can easily get trapped in, am I actually on track towards that goal? Or am I running into obstacles? whatever the obstacle may be. And when I run into an obstacle, when I run into a detour, so to speak, clarity, resilience, and determination are what's called for and what I then need to navigate that obstacle. What are some of the obstacles that um, you find that athletes, specifically at the Olympic level, run into? Well, the first one I would come back to again is just this myth um, that I have to have positive feelings to be successful, right? So this idea of when I perform well at the games, uh, I'm, I'm in a positive state of mind. I'm relaxed. I'm confident. Uh, I don't have any doubt whatsoever. I believe in myself. Uh, in my experience, that is a complete myth, A. Uh, and B, it's actually rather counterproductive. Confidence is a feeling state. And like all feeling states, 
they're very fleeting. And that one's fleeting too. And at the games, particularly that state, A, may not materialize, or B, may disappear. And then when you think then I have to generate the right feelings to be successful, then you're actually in big trouble, as opposed to, can I be in charge of my attention, irrespective of how I feel? And then can I take actions that are perhaps guided by determination and resilience? You're starting to touch on something that I'm both like fascinated and perturbed by, which is what I call spiritual bypassing, which I think shows up sometimes in this realm of positive psychology, right? And it touches on what you're saying of like, we cultivate our reality through manifesting continuous positive thoughts, right? And so I think you're touching on something that I think is really true, which is that there's a shadow side to kind of forcing ourselves into one way of feeling or thinking. And sometimes that is that we deny things that are actually under the surface or we like, we cease to be an integrated and whole person. I'm wondering what, what you think athletes for the most part do not want to feel at the Olympic games. I actually asked him that question. How, how do you not want to feel at the games? Uh, and, and I do that sort of experientially. So I'll put, you know, like 50 mood cards on the floor and I ask them, just pick the cards that capture how you don't want to feel and, you know, positive and unpleasant mood states. So it's the whole, the whole range of emotions and across the boards, they will pick, um, they will pick mood states, how they don't want to feel they're uncomfortable. They don't want to feel pressured. They don't want to feel tense. They don't want to feel nervous. Um, they don't want to feel anxious. They don't want to feel afraid. And then I ask them, okay, so, so why do you not want to feel this way? And again, the answer I get 100% of the time is, well, if I feel this way, I will not perform well. All right, that makes sense. So then I'll, I'll show them some quotes from athletes. And this is my favorite one here. It's, it's, the athlete goes, it's the only way to describe it. It feels like the gallows. So it feels like you're about to be hung right before the Olympic final, right? Do you want to feel like this guy? The answer is no, I don't want to feel like this guy. All right, that makes sense. Okay, so then I show you who this guy is. And this guy happens to be a guy named Chris Hoy, actually Sir Chris Hoy, because he got knighted by the British, by the Queen. Uh, this is a British track cyclist who has won six gold medals at the Olympic Games, describing how he felt before his first final uh, at the Olympic Games. This was in 2004 uh, in Athens, in an event called the Kilo. It was a time trial, a thousand meters on the track. And he happened to be the reigning world champion. And if you're the reigning world champion, you get to go last in the event. So you see everybody else's time clock in. And three of the last four guys broke the Olympic and the world record right before him, right? Before he gets to go. So he has to process all that. So in that moment, it felt really, really stressful for him, right? But that feeling is actually so normal because if the outcome matters to you and the outcome is uncertain, guess what emotional states will show up? Almost by definition, uncomfortable ones. We feel confident when we have certainty. But the Olympic Games, they serve up uncertainty. And then you add the meaning piece to it, right? This means the world to them. They've trained for this event for 12 years or longer sometimes. Then uncomfortable feelings will show up. So can I be open to those uncomfortable feelings and not get derailed by them? And Chris Hoy, actually his autobiography, he talks about when he felt like the gallows, what came next? So he talks about, he was sitting on the saddle of the bike, adjusting his helmet, gripping the handlebar, stepping into the pedals, hearing the countdown of the clock, 10, 9, 8, 7, and so forth. So all those things are sense perceptions. So he tunes into his sense perceptions to be present. And again, he can do that in the presence of uncomfortable feelings. And then all of a sudden, those feelings actually will not matter anymore. What you're talking about is really, I'm thinking about flow state. 
we want just enough stress, right, to sort of create that sense of alertness, aliveness, that sense of wanting, but not so much that we tip over into a place of feeling completely flooded and overwhelmed. And I'm wondering how you talk about that with your athletes of what the right amount of discomfort is. When I, as an athlete, think at the games, I need to be in this flow state, right? Then I am grasping for something that might actually not happen. And what's interesting, again, I think from this, you know, achievement motivation perspective that you mentioned is because the outcome is so important for the athlete. The outcome is so tangible. It's so close. They want it so much that that desire for the outcome can actually impair, again, their ability to be present. And with that comes also desire, again, I should be in this flow state, right? And then there's this misunderstanding that in flow, uh, I actually won't have uncomfortable feelings. Right. The very nature of the word kind of implies a false reality. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yes. And I think I think actually it's a mistake that my field makes in trying to sell mindfulness as a tool to get into flow at the Olympic Games. To me, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of mindfulness. It's not about feeling a certain way. I want to ask you about something that you brought up um, in our first discussion when we had a, our pre-interview and you were talking about, um, you brought your athletes on retreat. And I would love to have you share that story with our listeners and tell us a little bit about that experience. This is the women's, the women's water polo team. And just a little bit of the history, uh, the team had won a gold medal in 2012 in London and a gold medal in 2016 in Rio uh, with the same coach. And I had the privilege to work with the coach at Epicorean now for since 2008, so a long time. And we've always done some mindfulness work with, with the team. Uh, and over the years, I, I, I always kind of, you know, in a choking way, suggested to Adam, hey, wouldn't it be cool to take the team to a silent retreat. And he always blew me off because that's, that's like a really crazy idea. There's no way we're gonna do that. And, you know, just think about it, like, you know, which coach can give you seven to 10 days of training time um, to go to a place and just sit and not do anything at all, right? But from my own experience, you know, having, having done silent retreats, uh, I just thought this is like a training camp for the mind. And this idea of a training camp, that's obviously the language of the athlete, right? They're familiar with training camps where you can modify volume and intensity of a training load. And I think one way to look at the silent retreat is to look at this modification of volume and intensity of, of working with, with your mind. So when we won in 2016, you know, in another gold medal, then we win two world championships, so we know going to Tokyo will be the favorite. And when you're the favorite, one thing that happens is a particular mental state comes up, and that is precisely confidence. And you have this, this aura of invincibility and this aura of inevitability around you. And uh, when Adam and I spoke, you know, we both knew that that feeling of confidence and that aura of invincibility would get tested at the games for sure. No matter how many games we win prior to it, we thought a test would come. And we would then face very different emotions, emotions that perhaps we hadn't felt in a long time uh, because we hadn't lost a lot. So just to give you an idea, I think going into the Tokyo Games, our record was 88-1. So we won 88 games and lost one in that in the time span of two years. Um, so we thought that aura of invincibility, that aura of inevitability would get challenged. And we want to prepare for that. So somewhat to my surprise, in 2018, Adam said, Peter, let's do it. Meaning, let's do the retreat. You were like, finally. Yeah, finally. Yes, finally. But I was also, I was also very scared. I was also very scared. Just because of, of this wasn't something that the athletes were going to volunteer for and say, oh, yeah, cool. Let's go. Let's go do a mindfulness retreat for seven days in silence without phones 
without connection to the outside world and without talking to each other. So I got nervous about that, you know, how they would sort of handle it. Uh, we'd, in our preparation, we'd always done some kind of physical challenge. Like in 2012, we spent a day with the Navy SEALs in Coronado. Um, in 2016, 2015, we, we hiked Pikes Peak here in Colorado Springs. So, you know, 14,000 foot mountain. Um, but those challenges were more physical. This time, we were looking more at a mental challenge. And one thing that was really fascinating is, is when, when we arrived at our retreat setting, we sort of created our own retreat uh, here in the mountains in Colorado Springs, a place called Bison Peak. Uh, when the players arrived, you could tell um, they were nervous, um, they were intimidated, they were worried, and they were scared. And Adam actually talked about it, that he hadn't seen them feel that way in a long, long time, right? And then we actually both looked at each other and says, now we're here, let's go. And we felt the same way about the games, right? So, so yes, we can feel really these unpleasant emotions uh, and then, then basically get to work. Um, so, so we spent seven days at this retreat place in silence, sitting, walking, eating by yourself, doing your yogi chores, all that good stuff. Uh, having wonderful guides in, in Judd Brewer. And then at the end of the seven days, uh, we again added a, a physical challenge to, to the event. Uh, we climbed three 14ers in one day. What was the outcome of that experience for the participants? What was some of their feedback and their comments? Well, the, the goals we had said, we wanted to prepare the team for the storms that were ahead, that were coming ahead. We didn't know we had COVID on the horizon. We didn't know that the games would be postponed. We didn't know all the players had to add on another year of training, you know, to get to the games. Um, so we didn't foresee those challenges. And then, then at the games, um, in our third game, in round robin, um, we actually lost to Hungary 10 to 9. So not a second loss in a long time. Uh, and a team that we had lost to in a long time. And... As we were debriefing this afterwards, as the coaches were debriefing this afterwards with, with the players after the game, it was really interesting because, A, they talked about the, the pressure they felt as the favorite. And then there was also this tenor that, hey, we're at the Olympic Games. We should just enjoy ourselves. And we thought this is exactly what we prepared for, right? Uh, this desire now to feel the right way. So for us, it was was remembering that we had prepared for this moment, for this this change, and and we wanted to be open to these emotions, and not actually grasp for a particular mental state such as joy, uh, because truth be told, if you're the favorite at the Olympic Games, uh, if you're expected to win, joy hardly ever shows up right? So then grasping for joy would be a mistake. And then we met again that evening and, and again had a conversation about that. And then in the end, Adam had this big whiteboard in his you know, dorm space, so to speak. And then he wrote a few words on the board and the words were play the right way. And that may sound meaningless here or maybe trivial, but when he wrote that on the board, the players knew exactly what he meant. The players knew exactly how that would translate to action in the water, action in the pool, as opposed to how they were supposed to feel. Playing the right way, right, had everything to do with how they had trained themselves, how they play together, how they help each other, how they're connected in the water, how they find each other, how they fight for each other in the water. So they knew exactly what this meant. And really, through my lens, this was like this perfect behavioral cue that Adam gave them. So it was just brilliant coaching, really, right? And by giving them that play the right way, that showed a way out of you have to feel the right way, which again, through my lens, would have been a trap. I'm curious as we're talking about team sports and team achievement. So thinking about 
a sport like swimming, for example, right, where individuals are part of a team and yet they're also competing against one another. I'm curious uh, just to talk a little bit about that tension between being teammates, achieving towards a goal, and also being competitors or individuals who are vying for the same prize. This is actually something that I find quite fascinating. I know I'm going off a tangent here, but because America is, is often described as a very selfish country, right? Where you just focus on yourself, get rich and so forth. But interestingly enough, if you look at the Olympic Games, America is the best team sport country. So nobody wins more team sport medals at the games than US does. So what, what I'm trying to get at is, is one thing that we figured out in the team sport side when, when we do it right is, is that balance between valuing individualism, because that's actually also necessary to perform on teams, and then valuing that connection and that sacrifice for the greater good of the team. So one thing we do with, with the water polo team is, is we have this tradition, this cultural tradition, and call it that the hat ceremony. When we win the game, we have a player at some point in time was rewarded for having made a contribution to the team's performance. And then this player who has the hat, she will pass it on to somebody else on the team. And so she will pick a teammate who has made a significant contribution to the success of the team in this last game. Right. And what's been fun with this team is over the years is, is they have gotten so good at this ceremony that before they actually name the player that they're going to name, they go through half the team and praising them for something they did in the game. So they're just very alert and in tune with the contributions teammates make and what that matters to the team. And in the process, really sort of create a culture of, of fondness and appreciation that's just really important, I think, for teams to be successful. Mm-hmm, certainly. And I'm thinking of all of our listeners out there who work in the organizational space, right? And are often thinking about how do we recognize people in a way that both honors their individuality, but also honors their contribution to something larger. I want to ask about, you know, what do you feel like you learned thinking about Simone Biles' experience in in Tokyo? I'm curious to hear from you, Peter, what you sort of took away from that and how that influenced the way you help athletes prepare for Beijing. Well, first of all, I don't know Simone and I don't work with her. So this is just sort of, you know, my view from a distance here. But what I took away from her experience as well as other athletes in the role of favorite is the importance of preparing for an onslaught of unpleasant emotional states at the games. A and B, I think there's a sense of, and I think Simone spoke about this uh, very candidly and courageously, of having had a sense of, I have to do this for somebody else. So the sense of, I have to win for my country for my coach or for my family, whatever it may be, for the fans, right, that that athletes can get trapped in. So it again comes back to this idea of, of the mind as a thought and emotion producing factory. Athletes, when they start out in the sport, almost always they do it because they enjoy the sport. They enjoy the being of it. Um, and then what changes in the environment of the games is the meaning that we give to the medal. So if I win the medal, everybody in my surroundings will be happy and I will be happy. So the psychologist Paul Bloom at Yale says that we are essentialists, that we tend to give something an essence that actually might not be there. And I think we for sure do that with the Olympic medal. You know, we give it an essence. So if I win the medal, then I am somebody. And this gets back to me to, again, your comment earlier on about resilience and determination. So what I mean by that is, is resilience and determination are basically value propositions. They are about how I want to carry myself, right? So goals are about getting something and getting somewhere. Values are about how do I want to be in this moment? How do I want to carry myself in this moment? What do I want to stand for in this moment? 
So goals are a destination, values are a direction. And what's important for me now in preparation for Paris with my teams, again, is being really mindful of how easy it is to get sucked into the outcome goal and to counterbalance that with an ongoing conversation um, about values, right? So what do you want to stand for? So let's say I want to be determined, right? Okay, so if I want to be determined, that translates into specific actions in a moment-to-moment basis. And I can use those actions again to anchor myself in the present moment, but also then guide my behavior irrespective of how I feel. So when that onslaught of emotions comes at the games for an athlete, can I be open to that and then not get caught up in the outcome, but remind myself of how I want to carry myself in the space? There's something that I'm thinking of as you're talking, which is, and it's, you know, I'm sort of tracking the parallels between what you're talking about in the organizational space, right? And the difference between an organization that is hyper-focused on winning or profits, however you want to define that, and an organization that is actually more focused on a mission and values and thinking about how they show up each day in the marketplace and, and with their employees. Um, and I'm curious, you know, I, I think it's quite easy and I, I say this, you know, in a very self-effacing way, I see it in myself of to sort of think, to live in that mindset of like, if I get X, the medal, what have you, then I'll be happy. Then I will have achieved. Then I'll have some sort of mythical state of being that I've been aiming for. And I'm just wondering when you see people who do you know, win the gold medal, reach that goal, what are some of the emotional states that you see them go through afterwards? Well, very often it's elation. Sometimes it's also a sense of relief, right? And sometimes there's the sense of that elation uh, will carry forward. And that's where it can get difficult, I think, for Olympic athletes because the day after, right, uh, emotions they come and they go, they don't stay. So the unpleasant ones don't stay, the pleasant ones don't stay either, right? And the more the more I want to cling to the pleasant ones, the more likely they are to sort of move on, right? And then there's a danger of, of forgetting what actually generated those pleasant emotions. And very often what generates them is some specific actions that you as an athlete took over a very long period of time. And again, that's why I think that that question of, of what we want to stand for and what are my values is an important question for athletes to ponder. And it's not something where you just sort of come up with a quick answer. It's something I think you want to sit with it a bit and chew on it a bit and sort of see what arises. It's like your identity becomes entwined with the quote unquote succeeding. And I really hear you encouraging people to think like, how do you want to show up as a leader, as an athlete in your sport that actually has nothing to do with whether or not you win the medal. It's about how you came into the game, the attitude with which you came into the game, the values um, and, and how you live that out and what you demonstrated. I'm wondering how the larger U.S. Olympic team observes the needs of its high-achieving athletes, and and how would you even cite those needs? How would you talk about those? Well, I think first and foremost, again, it's it's this idea of you know looking at the athlete as a human being, right, uh, rather than a, a machine that produces medals. And I think you know one thing that my organization has done quite well over the last few years that you emphasize mental health and put a whole staff together to address a that need and also just to have a conversation about it and we've certainly seen a lot of athletes also having that conversation that i think actually um reverberates you know through society at large then um because i think historically for for a long time that's not a conversation that we had right that you can talk about mental health just like you talk about physical health and that you can take steps to address mental health, and that is actually courageous to do so, right? And again, obviously, Simone Biles has done some excellent work in that space, I think, by addressing that. 
How does the team create a culture of tenacity? That's a good question. That gets back again at, at this idea of, of values. So how are values defined in ACT? Values are defined as a desired global quality of an ongoing action, right? So desired, some that choose, okay? It's not a rule that someone imposes on you. It's something you choose. So you use the word tenacity, tenacious, right? Tenacious. I can choose to be tenacious in, say, you know, with the water polo team in the pool. Uh, I can choose to be tenacious in the strength and conditioning session. I can choose to be tenacious in a seven-day sound retreat when my mind says, I don't want to be here. Why are we doing this? Right. I can choose to be tenacious. I'm so curious and thinking about that inner critic and thinking about, you know, and I don't, the life stories of your athletes. To what degree do some of your athletes think that that is like innate, something that they can identify having lived with their entire lives? To what degree does that come from external forces such as the environment or cultural messaging? I'm just, I'm curious about that. I think a big part of, of my job is to normalize the internal critic. One of my favorite quotes is from, from Rafael Nadal, from his autobiography. And he goes, what I battle hardest in a tennis match is to quiet the voices inside my head. That's the critic. To shut everything out but the contest itself. That's the narrowing of attention. To concentrate every atom of my being on the point I'm playing. Let's focus on the moment now, that's attention, the currency of performance. If I made a mistake on the prior point, this is where the critic comes in, right? He says, let it go. So thinking about the past isn't going to help. He goes on. If a thought of victory suggests itself, crush it. So here you have an athlete who is aware there's an internal dialogue going on. So what the thought and most boosting factor does. All day long, our mind offers up thoughts. And I do a very simple exercise to prove the point. I grab a stopwatch and I tell my athletes, once I press start, don't have any more thoughts. And the moment the first thought pops up, just raise your right hand, right? Ready, set, go. Three seconds in, the hands pop up. The first thought came. Uninvited. All on its own. Didn't choose to have it. You have no control over your thoughts, right? So we have an athlete here, Nadal, aware of that internal dialogue. Aware, if I get sucked into that, it's actually not helping. So with that awareness, right, then I can choose where I put my attention. In his case, concentrate every atom of your being on the point you're playing. So he wants to see the tennis ball. That's different for a Simone Biles. That's different for a wrestler. That's different for a water pole player, but they all know where they want to put their attention when it comes time to compete. So again, attention is a currency of performance. And then, of course, stuff happens, mistake in the past, thoughts will come up. That's what the factory does. Can I be aware of that? That pull into the past or being hijacked into the future, right? A thought of victory. It's a pleasant thought. It's a nice feeling, but it's not going to help him play the next point. What matters is, can I come back and focus on the next point, right? In order to do that, I got to see how that thought is trying to hijack me into the future. Peter, I'd love to have you tell me when you're looking at a team and maybe it's in training or maybe it's in a competition itself and you're seeing a team of people where everybody is focused on that present moment, right? Crushing any focus on the goal and also not letting um, thoughts of the past intrude. In that present moment, attuned to one another, working as a kind of symphony, what is the feeling that you have as someone witnessing that? Well, you used an interesting phrase there, symphony. That's what it feels like. It feels like all the notes are being hit just the right way and it flows and it's connected. It's this rhythm to it right, that you see on the team. And then it becomes quite magical. Um, and I think like for the water polo team, there were moments like that in the gold medal game when, when everything just clicked right off the get-go. Uh, and again, that comes again after years and years of, of training, actually. Um, but then when it happens, it's almost probably tangible. Uh, and, and I think symphony is a really great word to capture that. 
I'm also curious just to talk a little bit about the role of trust in team achievement. And I'm wondering if you uh, can share with us any stories of where a betrayal of trust has occurred and how you have helped your athletes overcome that. I think um, the marriage researcher, John Gottman, has a really helpful model, I think, that also applies to relationship in team sports. You know, he says that all relationships have, have conflict. And there are some of us who are masters at conflict and some of us are disasters. The disasters of conflict, they cause them the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And then we have the antidotes, you know, it calls them a, you know, a soft startup, creating a culture of appreciation, taking responsibility, and then having the ability to, to regulate your emotions to self-soothe. So I think we can actually practice those, those elements. And again, we can become aware of the horsemen. So sometimes trust will get violated, right? That's a moment of conflict. And trust, in a way, is, is to me, is like an onion with many layers. We can take layers off and we can put layers on. And over the course of a season, right, we, we can, again, work on building that onion and adding layers to it. And if there's a, a violation of trust, to have a conversation about it, right? So part of my job, my work is to create a space where the athletes can talk with each other rather than me talking at them. Uh, so very often I will try to create that space for them where they can speak with each other and then we can build on those layers of onions so it doesn't get to a place where it becomes irreparable. So it's very much a proactive approach as opposed to a reactive approach to something that happened. My last question for you is just, um, you know, thinking again about this experience of uh, identifying as an athlete, identifying as someone who achieves, identifying as the winner of a gold medal. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit what happens for many athletes when they're done competing. Well, from a research perspective, that depends a bit whether that transition is is voluntary or involuntary. Uh, so involuntary is, you know, you have an injury and you have to retire. Involuntary is when you get cut from a team and you don't make it on the games. You know, voluntary is when you might reach your goals and then choose to, to move on and so forth. So uh, I think this is no, no different than you might see in the organizational space, you know, when someone gets laid off or, or chooses to leave an organization, the bad piece plays into it. What will come next, A, and B, um, as I sort of transition out of this athlete identity, you know, who am I, right? Um, and what's helpful there is, A, to understand you're more than just an athlete, right? That's just sort of a label that you have. Um, and from a mindfulness perspective, that's just this idea of, of a self you may have, but that idea of self is actually not that real. Um, fleeting. And then, <laughs> yeah, fleeting, yes, fleeting, right? And then coming back again to, to the values question. You know, I'm thinking back to, to in 2019, I had the chance to be in Cape Town with one of my sports. And at the end of the tournament, uh, I got to visit Robben Island where Nelson Mandela was incarcerated for, uh, I think, 18 out of his 27 years in prison. And, and then I remember reading this, this article in the New York Times where they shared a letter Nelson Mandela had written to his wife, Winnie, talking about how he used the cell um, as his meditation space to sort of investigate how he would define success, A, eh? and what's good about him. So in what, what qualities or strength are good about him that he wanted to cultivate. And obviously when you're in prison for that long with no hope of ever getting out, right? To hear him sort of share that story and using that time to reflect on himself, to reflect on what he wanted to stand for, right? How he wanted to say, educate his fellow inmates um, about politics, how he was going to, you know, cultivate a relationship with, with the, uh, the jailers and, and, and learn their, you know, their language, their culture, so he communicate with them. 
so for me in that story he came back to the values piece right and reconnecting with that and then again using values to guide uh, one's behavior rather than using some kind of identity to guide your behavior right so he didn't see himself as a prisoner um, as opposed to something really different and I think that's also important for athletes to keep in mind right how did I carry myself or you know thinking of the great Norwegian Olympian you know Johan Olaf Kors who you know after winning three gold medals retired and then formed the humanitarian organization right to play right so there's much that transfers i think from their experience as an athlete to the next step in their careers peter thank you so much is there anything else that you want to add or that you feel that we haven't touched on in our conversation that feels important i, I would just come back one last thing here for me again you know the thought and emotion producing factory right one thing that factory offers up often is doubt uh, so again, I come back to a quote in the story. So here the athlete goes, I've been doubtful in all the 11 years that I've played here. I've been doubtful in all the 11 years that I've played here. So again, I ask, hey, do you want to be this guy? Doubt for 11 years? The answer is no, I don't want to be that guy. Why don't you want to be that guy? Well, that guy isn't going to be successful. Then I reveal who said that, right? And it's one Rafael Nadal talking about the French Open. That at that time, he had won nine out of 11 times. And now he's won 13 times. And Nadal says, I have doubt every day. And he says, doubts are good for you in life. Doubt, that's uncomfortable, that's unpleasant. Yet, yet he says he has it all the time. And they're good for you. Because he understands when he has doubt, he doesn't take the outcome for granted, right? So you never see Nadal underestimating an opponent. You never see Nadal not prepared for a competition. So this is someone who has learned to understand and work with his mind very, very skillfully. And that's, that's you know, I think that's worthwhile working with and working at because doubt will come up on this journey. Uh, that athletes have, and that I'm sure many of the listeners will have as well. As I heard you tell that story, I feel like I just made a little bit of space for my own self-doubt in my heart. And it was a really, <laughs> I felt the impact of that. I was like, ah, oh, that feels relieving just to be able to welcome that in as part of the experience of being human. Thank you so much, Peter. Really appreciate you being here with us today on the show. And it's such a joy to hear about the work that you do and your particular approach to it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Good afternoon, Mr. Goleman. I'm Elena Cattaneo, and I'm an Italian teacher. Uh, I strongly believe in emotional intelligence how can I use emotional intelligence with my students even when we deal with, let me say, boring stuff like grammar or something like that? And how can I have their attention through emotional intelligence? Thank you very much for this opportunity. Bye-bye. Uh, Elena, I love the question. Elena, remember, emotions are contagious, and they're contagious from the most powerful person in the room outward. And you as the teacher are the most powerful person. So your emotional state uh, matters to your students. If you're bored by the subject, they're going to be bored by the subject. If you love the subject, if you show that enthusiasm, no matter what the subject is, they'll pick up the feeling. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI, and beyond. Do you have a question for Dan Goleman? He wants to hear from you. Go to keystepmedia.com slash askdan. That's keystepmedia.com slash askdan to record your question now. While you're there, follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter. 
And be sure to tune in next time when our guest will be Sasha Dingle. She's a professional athlete and is the founder and director of Mountain Mind Project. Dingle speaks to us about how she reconciles the tension between her goals and other factors in the moment, like her health. We care about supporting you on your EI journey and helping to bridge the gap between theory and application. That starts by better understanding you and the resources you are looking for. If this resonates with you, and if you have six minutes to spare, please take our Audience and Emotional Intelligence Insights Survey. You can find it at keystepmedia.com slash EI survey. That's keystepmedia.com slash EI survey. We promise to take your insights to heart. You'll have our deep gratitude and a free copy of the Leading with Empathy ebook, a collective guide that explores different applications and facets of empathy. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Isabella, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Dr. Peter Haberl. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Carrie Seed. Audio production by Michelle Zipkin. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Tiny Footsteps in the Snow by BioUnit, Norma by Mon Plaisir, and our theme music is by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.